0: This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12-20. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as a text is presented on the screens above. Hear the word of the Lord. I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for the food, and God will destroy both of them. The body, however is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise you also. Do you not know what your bodies are, are, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said... The two will become one, one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20.
1: This morning I have titled uh, the sermon, Broken Sexuality. Yep, it is up there. Once or twice a year, I get the opportunity to give the talk about sex with our students. Usually with our middle schoolers or our high schools. It's nothing new to me. But I believe it's incredibly important to talk about it. And especially in the church. The church needs to talk about it. And so today, today I asked my friend Jimmy if he would help introduce this topic to us. And so we're going to roll this video. Instead of adults teaching kids about sex, I think it would be less embarrassing if kids learned it from other kids. We went out on the street this afternoon and we asked kids how babies are made. And we are very proud now to present the results of that inquiry for your education
2: and pleasure. Where do babies come from? Ladies' tummies. The ladies eat the babies? No. They just get pregnant. <laughs> How are babies made? Um the downstairs goes into the girls downstairs. Do you know where babies come from? <laughs> or babies made. When moms and dad makes love. Do you know where babies come from? A I A K A made a How are babies made? <laughs> they <laughs> Why is it so funny? <laughs> it's weird. Um what's weird about it? Knowing that my parents have to do it. <laughs> where do babies come from? Uh Explain to him. (laughs) Their mom? Their mom? Tell me, I don't know. You don't know? Explain to him how it works. Is Yeah. Do you know how babies are made? Yeah. How? How are babies made?
0: Um,
2: Why is it gross? Because it, it's, it's health. What do you mean, health? I'm not in fifth grade yet. I shouldn't know this stuff. It's so gross. Um, just where it comes from, I've seen Star Wars, and it looks really gross in me.
1: Oh, oh man, Star Wars isn't even safe anymore, man, watch out. Oh, that last guy, he's like trying to shake it out of his head. He's like, no, no, I can't talk about that, no. Oh, oh, I love kids. Did you pick up too, though, did you pick up on a little bit of of the, the shock, a little bit of the shame, a little bit of the like, I don't know if I should talk about this topic, right? That's why I think it's good we're here. And we're going to break some ice here and have some fun, but uh, man, not an easy topic. So today, I wanted to have a little dialogue with you, and I wanted to ask for your feedback. So this is going to be a time where you speak. I know we don't usually speak during sermons. We've got to be quiet, but not when I preach. I would like to talk to people. And so today, I want to hear from you, what does the world tell you about sex? What messages are the world giving you about sex? And now's the time when you talk. (laughs) It sells. It sells. Yep. Keep going. Fun. Fun.
2: Just
1: do it. Nike. (laughs) Whoa. All right. Anybody else? Not reserved. Not reserved. All right. Anybody else? Uh, You uh, don't judge me on my spelling. Keep going. Won't be hurt. Won't be hurt. Not personal. It's okay.
2: (laughs) It's
1: dirty. Dirty. All right. Nice work. Here we go. What does the church tell you about sex? Or what messages have you heard? marriage gift Gift. unity Unity. okay you got that one that's got two on that one scary (laughs) I laugh because here we go. Okay. I see which side looks more fun. I don't know. Okay, so, (laughs) this was the same... going on, I would say, in the Corinthian church, what we just heard about in those scriptures. The church was in this place of, of, of wondering what is sex and sexuality and how does it fit in with who we are. For me growing up, I had an unhealthy view of sex, I would say. Unhealthy in the sense that I was afraid of it. I was scared of it. I was scared that I might get a girl pregnant. I was scared that I might have an STD or get an STD. But I think at the heart of it, I was scared that I'd have to tell my mom and dad. It freaked me out. Freaked me out. It doesn't mean I wasn't fascinated by it, (laughs) but it scared me. And it kept me from a lot of things, right? It kept me out of some trouble, but it, it, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't the whole picture. For me, as a pastor, I get to do premarital counseling and I get to sit down with couples before they get married together. And I have to say... The majority of the couples I meet with are either A, living together, or B, having sex before they have gotten married. It's just the norm. Barna, if you're familiar with them, Barna has put out some research conducted with Americans. And the research shows that Americans in the age of 18 to 23, 84% of them are having sex before marriage. 84%. And when they open that up to all ages, 95%. 95%. It's just the norm. This is the culture we live in. This is what the world is telling us. That it's casual. It's not personal. It's just something to do. It's just a part of our relationships. And the Corinthians had similar beliefs. Today, I'm going to look at three points of Paul's view on freedom. And I put a question mark there. Paul's view on the body. And Paul's view on divine possession. Paul is addressing the church in Corinth and there's this belief that they had that their souls and that their bodies were separate. That their souls were saved for God and that their bodies were just used to be here on earth and they could do whatever they pleased with them. You hear that in that phrase, I have the right to do anything. When I was first preparing for this sermon and I heard that phrase, I heard middle schoolers. If you've ever been around a middle school, are like, man, i got the right to do whatever I want. I could do whatever I want. And it's especially true when I take them on trips and they have mom and dad's money and they get to go into a store and buy whatever they want for dinner. Man, I've had kids come out with whole chickens. I'm like, I'm like what are you two? Anyways. <laughs> I have the right to do whatever I want. All right, back to the topic. Okay, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've heard those words before. Some of the foundational beliefs of America. But I want to ask us the question is that the gospel? Because for Paul, freedom is not to be done and used for our own pleasure. For Paul, freedom is for the Lord. If you were with us last week, Pastor Mark was preaching and he shared about this sense of individualism in our culture. It's everywhere. There's a sense of I am who I am. I'm going to make up the beliefs of who I am and who are you to judge my beliefs. My morality, my beliefs are based upon my social, cultural, historical, and personal circumstances. And you have no say on that. There is no ultimate truth. And we shouldn't criticize each other. And what this is saying is that our morals are based about around what's going on inside and what's going on around the outside of us. But before you can determine morals, before you can determine right or wrong, you have to know that there's right and that there's wrong. Morality is not just based upon your head or based upon how you feel. When you receive when you receive a speeding ticket, do you have to feel guilty? I don't think so. Morality has to be based in God. And it is unaffected by human opinions. Because in the absence of God, everything is permissible. Everything becomes relative. There's no ultimate consequences. Who cares? And so how do we navigate morals and truth before we even get to this topic here, how do we navigate morals and truth? And I would say God's word. Here we are a part of a denomination and it's called the Evangelical Covenant Church. One of the centerpieces of who we are is we believe in the centrality of the word of God. Big Christian church words that says we believe in the authority of the scriptures. Here's what it says. Covenant people have always been people of the word who value the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, as the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. We desire to know, understand, and live out the truths of the Bible. Sustained and intentional effort in this priority is critical. Critical, that's a key word there. It's critical to our being. It's critical to our living The letter to 2 Timothy says this, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, we like it when the scriptures teach us. We like it when the scriptures train us. But we don't like it when it rebukes us. We don't like it when it corrects us because that feels like it's taking away our freedom. And who likes that? Freedom, Paul is warning us, is not a new form of slavery to something we think we have the right to go do. Freedom is based upon God's truth, God's plan, and God's for Freedom. And so Paul uses this big term, sexual immorality. in a sense of of surrendering of sexual purity is another way of thinking of it. From the Greek word, we get that word porneia. Sounds a lot like an English word, pornography. That's where we get those two words. And it's stemming from the concept of selling off. So we can think of it this way. Sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity. And it involves any type of sexual expression outside the bounds of a biblically defined marital relationship. And the Corinthian church was selling themselves off in in sexual immorality. And I believe our society is doing the same thing. You can't buy a car without running into it. You can't turn on the TV without running into it. Our young people are under incredible amounts of pressure. When I talk with them, they tell me about what's happening at our high schools. Did you know that at Skyline High School, right here a block away, that after one month of dating, it's assumed that that couple is in in, in sexual activity together? After one month, it's expected that they're doing that. What does that do for, for our Christian kids who are trying to date or go into the high school and there's this expectation upon them? Man, we're living in a different world, people. Pray for our young people. Pray for our young people. And so then Paul, then he takes the argument a little deeper, a little, little, little wider, if you will. And in verse 14, he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And as I'm studying this, I'm like, what in the world does the resurrection of Christ have to do with sexual immorality? And I would say, everything. 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 You see, through Christ's resurrection from the dead, God set into motion our own resurrection. The redemption is not just the saving of a part of us. It's not saving of just our souls, but it's saving of our whole being. Resurrection is about the entirety of a person. Right? We celebrate this day one day a year, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And we have to wait an entire year to go back and celebrate that. But I believe that we should be 365-day Easter people. That every morning when you wake up, you say, man, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your resurrection work in my life, that I get to still be here and do your work, and that one day I get to go be in heaven with you. Resurrection life every day. And this is where we get into what I want to call body theology, okay? So track with me here body theology. Verse 15 tells us that the believers, the Corinthian church, are one in body with the Lord. Paul is defining what Christian community looks like, acts like, and how they behave. If you were with us last week, one of the things that I picked up on Pastor Mark's sermon, he said this phrase, and it just stuck with me for a week, and I've been stirring on it the whole time. He said this, He he was talking about sin, and he said this phrase. He said, socially transmitted sin. Socially transmitted sin. And I believe that sexual immorality is a socially transmitted sin. It's not just something you can do for yourself. It affects everybody. And it's here. It's in the church. And God has something to say about it. When sin occurs, it's happening to the body, to our bodies, to our souls. And when it happens to somebody here in our midst, it's happening to our body. Right? When we're followers of Jesus' way, we say that we are the body of Christ. And when something affects one member of that body, it affects us all. And we've got to remember that this section of Scripture was meant for Christians, it was meant for a church. That this was happening within a body of believers, not to non-believers. I think it's easy to look at this and be like, don't be sexually immoral out there in their world. But Paul's saying, no church, no Jesus followers. This is the way towards Christ. And so we, I would say, are to be stewards of our body. For Paul, humans don't have bodies. They are bodies, and Paul makes this connection that sexual immorality involves a bodily union. And it's not what our bodies were made for. And so in verse 15, Paul does this like wake up call for people. And he says, Would we unite members of the church to a prostitute? And I could just imagine them be like, whoa, wait, what are you talking about? That's that's over the line. We can't talk that way in the church. And Paul's waking them up to say, Are you listening to me? And sometimes, I think we can convince ourselves of things and convince ourselves that our actions are okay. And sometimes we can sound a little silly with our rationalizations of our behavior. Let me, let me put it to you this way. I love coffee at the Cornerstone Cafe, shameless plug.
2: <laughs>
1: but, I love me a good Dr. Pepper. You, a couple of you feel me on that one. But both of those together, not so good. (laughs) What if it's like this? I'm sleeping with my fiance, but I'm teaching Sunday school this week. Or I regularly look at pornography, and I'm also going to church every week. I don't recommend this.
2: (laughs) <laughs>
1: I, I got one more hold on or you could say and this is heavy I'm cheating on my spouse but I read my Bible every day
2: <gasps>
1: and the things that this does inside of me I wish I could describe it to you <laughs> That'll preach. Because the things that sin and sexual sin do in the inside of us should not be happening together. These two things cannot exist in the same person. Or it will come out. I'm not doing that for you today. Hold on. Okay. (laughs) This is the second time. You know this is the second service. I got a belly full of... Okay. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but as Jesus followers I wish that each of us could have a made in God sticker put on us if you've ever seen the Toy Story movies the moment that Andy gets one of those toys he scratches in his name upon those, those uh, toys and he says it's mine that's the same thing I wish that could happen for us that when God claims us and we are his we see that and God's like I got you you're mine you're mine And if I, oh, and as we go on, Paul then talks in verse 16, and he he makes this quote back to the Genesis narrative. So in this section, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and he kind of gives us a biblical definition for what sexual intercourse should be. It's found in the creation narrative, and in the union of a husband and a wife. And in this section in Genesis 2, 24, it's the picture of Adam and Eve coming together, becoming one flesh. If you want to do another word study of what the scriptures say about scripture, uh, about sex, look at one flesh. Check it out. It's all throughout the entirety of the scriptures. But... Eve was taken from Adam, if we remember that, in the creation narrative. And so that then when these two come together in that sexual union, in that union as husband and wife, there's something happening there that is replaying the creation narrative. Sexual intercourse is replaying the, sexual, the, the, uh, the creation narrative of how God designed things to be from the very get-go. And there's something physical that happens there and there's something spiritual that happens there. And it's a, it's a mystery that we've got to be okay with not fully understanding. And I wish, when I was 12, I wish I could have had that definition. That this is God's hope and this is God's desire for it. Not that it's dirty or that it's scary or that it's all these things that I had in my brain. But that this, was what, this is how God has designed it to be. And so then he takes that picture and he says, look, you are united with the Lord. You are one with the Lord. And so that then we are united with him. Our decisions are united with him. Our actions are united with him. Excuse me, this is still going.
2: <clears throat>
1: oh my goodness. And this becomes our identity. We are united people. We are united people with God. And I need to address another topic, one that's big in our society these days and one that's big within our church. And this is where I get concerned for our LGBT people, for our LGBT brothers and sisters. For a moment, I just want to share a quick little piece from Nick's perspective, okay? So pin this on me, send me the email tomorrow, but this is Nick's perspective. I'm not going to get into the conversation of whether it's sin or not, what the church should or should not be doing, or what the covenant stance is or not. I want to take a different look at this conversation. I want to say, first off, many, if not most, of our LGBT persons in our community have been hurt by the church. By the messages they have received, to the judgment they feel, To physical harm. They have been hurt by the church. And we need to see that as a part of our story. Okay, church? Whether we did the harm or not, or said the words or not, these are people who have been hurt in the name of Jesus, trying to protect Jesus and to protect his church. And for that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because I believe that every single human being should be welcomed into this place. That everyone should find a place in this church and that everybody should be brought to the foot of the cross so that we might look more and more like Jesus. But labels are where we can get a little dangerous. And labels can stick. And sometimes labels can stick so deep that they identify us. And we become that label. One of my concerns for the LGBT community is the labels they have identified with and the labels they've allowed to stick to themselves. I would love to sit down in an open and honest and open-hearted conversation with someone and just tell me, you know, what was that process like? You're battling all these feelings and thoughts going on inside of you and you're looking at the acronym LGBT and it keeps going on to about 29 different letters. (laughs) Truly, truly, truly. He said, I'm a T. You know, that identifies me. That's who I am. I'm a T. Yeah, I'm I'm an L. Yeah, that's what's going on up in here. The hard part for me is that they're identifying themselves by what they do and what they desire. Okay? They're identifying themselves by their sexuality. And ultimately, if we were to get at the heart of what's going on, They're looking for a place to belong. They're looking for somebody to understand. They're looking for somebody to sit and to listen and to be with them and to have empathy and to say, what's going on in your world? But identifying on the spectrum, I think, is is just a fragmented view of belonging. Because when our identity is tied up in what we do and what we desire what happened was when that's taken away or can no longer be fulfilled. I've witnessed this in the lives of our teenagers, many who are star athletes, top of their game, out there on a game on Saturday, get hit the wrong way and tear every CL in their knee. I don't know how many CLs there are. There's a lot, right? Help me out, Hector. (laughs) Tear everyone in their knee and then they're out for the rest of the season or for the next year. And I've sat with kids who have cried in their bed saying, Who am I now? What am I supposed to do? Where's my value? Who am I? Same thing happens to adults when we lose a job. We lose a relationship. Or we lose a spouse. Who am I now? Or maybe if we have experienced hurt or abuse in our past. We can allow that to define us and to continually hurt us for decades later. Because you see, our identities are at the core of how we value ourselves. I want to say that one more time, because this is the heart of it right here. Our identities are at the core of how we value ourselves and i want to say that our true foundational identity is found not in our doing but in our being that's why we call ourselves human beings isn't it in the scriptures we get this picture that we are created imago dei in the image of god in the image of god we are created Our identity is found in being made, designed, and created in a loving God that has redeemed us for his kingdom work here, and our bodies and our spirits are a part of that work. All other labels fall short of that identity. God wants more for us than the label we allow to stick to ourselves. He loves us so much that he purchased us. And I want to make this our last point. In verse 18, Paul challenges the Christians of the church and he says, Flee, run away, get out of that situation that is drawing you down, that is tempting you. Physically move yourself to a place of healing and wholeness and betterness so you're not drawn into that. Because there's something different about sexual immorality and sexual sin that is different than any other sin. There's something deeper, more relational. And then Paul elevates what the Corinthian church devalued. If you remember back, we were talking about. Paul elevates what the Corinthian church undervalued, and he makes a statement about our bodies, and he calls them the temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you pick up on that in the scripture? I don't know about you, but I wake up every morning, look in the mirror and say, man, what a wonderful looking temple. <laughs> you don't? Not. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, let me drink some Dr. Pepper. No. No, no, no. <laughs> you see, the believer's body has become the place, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. In those times, the temple was the center of Jerusalem and the people knew that the, the Spirit of God dwelled there. There. And they would go there so they could be near or see the presence of God. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, no, 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 just look right here. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's your value. That's your identity, right? Think of it this way, parents. How many of you have ever given the keys to your car to your 16-year-old? That's a big day. That's a big day. You say, here you go. I'm trusting three times. I'm trusting you to drive where you're going to drive, to take it as fast as you want to take it. And who are you taking with you? I don't know. I've got to trust you. Same thing. We're God in us. God has handed us the keys to these bodies, and he says, look, human being, you get to take this thing where you want to go. You get to go as fast as you want to go. You get to experience it with whoever you want to. It's your choice. But God has given us the parameters of where the boundary lines are in his word. And so out of this knowledge, Paul gets to his crescendo. And it's the last phrase of this entire section. And it says, therefore, glorify God in your body. I had a professor in college who had this cute little phrase. And he says, when you see a therefore... Ask, what's it there for? Right? Cool. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, in response to God's love, in response to God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ, live lives that glorify Him. You see, God did something, humans did not. God paid a price, humans did not. God purchased us and therefore God owns us. (laughs) And that he claims all the lives of the believers. God has made us whole persons. And in Christ we are redeemed wholly, holistically. So the question is not am I free to do whatever I want with my freedom? But the question is does it benefit my body? Does it benefit the body? See, sex is a great and wonderful thing. And it's celebrated in the marriage relationship. And it can be a dangerous thing when it's experienced outside of God's design. And so maybe today, this conversation and this topic brings up memories from your past. Maybe it brings up some hurt that you've experienced or are experiencing we want to acknowledge that. We want to acknowledge that. We want to think the best of the church, but we know this stuff happens because sexual abuse is abuse against our bodies, against our souls, and against the temple of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures tell us, and it affects us too. It affects us too. So, if you faced abuse, man, I am sorry my prayer for you is that you don't stay in that camp for too long. That you might feel the the freedom to begin steps of healing whatever God is calling you to, whatever that looks like for you personally. And that you don't feel alone or ashamed in this process of healing. Maybe you've been carrying it for years, for decades, for a lifetime. Don't allow it to define you. Because something was stolen it was not lost. And for those of us, maybe we have family members or we have people in our life who have, are experiencing this too, who've gone through this or are still going through this. And what's our response to be? And uh, our response is that we walk, that we sit, that we be present in love. Chad, can I get you up here, man? That we walk, that we sit, that we be present in love. We might not have all the right answers, but we have to be present. And in time, when we've earned the right, we get to sit with people and remind them of the truth of their identity. That they are loved and that their ultimate true identity is found in being a human being, right? If that's you today, I want you to know that we have incredible resources here to love and to care for you. That you don't have to sit alone today in the midst of your hurt. One of those is called Stephen Ministers, a group of people who are trained and would love to just sit in the hurt with you and to just be in your presence and walk you when you're ready to wholeness and healing. This fall, we're also starting a group called Grief Share. You'll hear more about that as an opportunity to gather with others going through some hard stuff. But there are things here that you don't have to walk this road alone. This church... Wants to love you and see you in wholeness. You see, we are created as sexual beings as part of who we are. It's just a part of who we are, it's not all of who we are. From our hurts to our hopes, we must bring every part of ourselves to the foot of the cross where we are shown that we are loved we are redeemed and we are forgiven people it is the place where we begin the steps of healing we begin to walk in the ways of Jesus and so this morning I am going to allow some time where the Holy Spirit gets to continue to chat with you chat with you in your heart in your head and what's going on in with you he can teach you better than I can and I'm going to leave you with some scripture that we can think and we can let it wash over us my hope is that God can use it in your world. And the scripture comes from Romans chapter 12, and I took it from the message version. I think it gets down to our, to our day-to-day language, and it says this. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping. You're eating. You're going to work, and you're walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Do not become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out.